really about face planted just now. That was fun. Let me tell you what, when the crock gets stuck on the carpet, you're in trouble. Just saying. Oh, yes. Yes. Wow. Wow. What a six weeks it's been. I guess seven weeks, really. It's been seven weeks since I've stood up here and done what I'm doing. And goodness gracious, I, I will cry, Chris. Let me just tell you right now. And thank you all so much. I mean, you have no idea um, what these last six weeks have meant to us as a family and what we've enjoyed, what we've missed. <clears throat> um, just thank you. That's all I can say. Thank you so much. And now, that being said, I do kind of feel like a slingshot that's been pulled back for six weeks. So, <laughs> I'm not responsible for what happens up here today, okay? Um, I, like I said in the music, <clears throat> there we're, we're going to be moving into the two Old Testament minor prophets of Nahum. I might say Nahum, I might say Nahum, I don't know. Uh, it, it just comes out differently, different times. And Habakkuk. And when I was little and learning the Bible book song, it was Habakkuk. I will not say Habakkuk. So if you do, hey, that's great. Um, but uh, I think it's really important for us to know what was going on leading up to these books. And we'll kind of set the timeline today and give background on the books. But but the first thing I want to do is kind of, I love, love, love to do these survey type messages, which is we're, we're going to go from creation to the kingdom in an overview so that we can catch the historical setting of who these guys were talking to and what was going on. And, and one of the things that, man, I've really wrestled with, I'm not switching here, we can go to that title slide. I don't know. Mine's not switching. Mine just crashed. So, um, I got some questions, and I think the people of God, um, primarily, uh, so uh, Nahum and Habakkuk are both going to be prophets who are ministering to the southern kingdom of Judah after the northern kingdom of Israel has been wiped off the face of the earth. And I can't help but think the people of God had questions. And they had to be, I would say, a little bit confused about what was going on. Because these are the people of God. And it seems like God's forsaken them. And so the questions that we're looking at here as we move through this um, uh, survey this morning before we get into the background of the books, can God fail? And it's easy for us to say the Sunday school answer. Can God be or do evil? That's a much more complex question than just, oh, no. And the answer is no. Please know anything that I say today, I don't mean irreverently, but, but from the human element, we got questions, right? If you don't got questions, you're not engaged in this thing, right? If you're just, let me, take, let me say this up front. God does not call his people to walk by blind faith. Just accepting whatever comes their way, not asking any questions, and God is good all the time, and all the time God is good, and then going to bed at night going, but man, why did this happen? 
Oh, well, no, God's good. We sang that song, that last song there, and I love it because it's like minor struggles, minor troubles, minor battles, minor questions, minor failings, and Christ is mine forevermore. And we are not health, wealth, and prosperity people who just go out and say, I'm just going to speak into existence the blessings that God should have for me, for what I want. That's not scripture. Can God fail? Can God be or do evil? Can God be unjust? Keep those questions at the forefront of your mind. As we move into this, we're going to ask them again and again and again and again as we move through this. So so starting with creation. And, And Chris, you couldn't have picked a better opening verse this morning. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. This James Webb telescope thing is making us, ooh, ah, and we should. We rightfully rightfully should. And God created that, speaking it into existence. By the way, God's the only being in the universe that can speak things into existence. That's not our calling. And these vast galaxies and nebulae and all these black holes and all this stuff. If you're watching this James Webb telescope, please, ooh and ah. And remember, God spoke it into existence. The heavens and the earth. And everything that's on the earth. Trees and plants and animals and people. So therefore, as we start this, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So who do the heavens and the earth belong to? They are His. They belong to Him. To do with as He pleases. He's the author of the story. And that's good news. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it was good and it was good and it was good and it was good and it was very good. And then it was not good. Why was it not good? Because it's not good for man to be alone. Well, why didn't he just create two people to begin with? Why would he look at something and say, well, that's not good. Is he God? Does he not know? Did Adam start walking around looking to hug animals and like, stay away from me, freak. You're freaking me out. And God's like, oh, this is not good. I should do something else. It's not good that man should be alone. So I'll I'll make a woman, God said. And from the very beginning, from the very beginning, there was an option for these two human beings to do something they shouldn't do. From the very beginning. Now, i got questions. Why? Why would you do that, God? And again, I don't mean to be irreverent. Couldn't you just create a world without that tree? Couldn't he? But he didn't. Did did he fail? And immediately, in the scripture at least, we don't know how long it was, there's this serpent in this beautiful, wonderful, perfect garden. Why? Could, Could you not have done that, God? But he did. In his heavens and his earth, 
There's the option to sin, and there's an advocate of that sin who wiggles and slithers his way. Maybe he walked, I don't know. Maybe, hey, y'all, I got legs, and God cursed him later. I don't know. But why? Serpent means there's a devil. And we learn from later passages that this Satan, this devil, this Lucifer was an archangel who exalted himself and said, I'll make myself like the Most High. And God said, no, you won't. You'll be condemned to this creation I just made. And you'll be down there and that'll be your realm-ish. Again, I don't don't get it. Why? And so almost immediately, Adam's twiddling his thumbs and Eve says, looks good, tastes good, it's going to make me wise. Why not? You will not surely die. Did God really say you died? That's not what he meant. Boom. Oh no, God must be wringing his hands. Well, shoot, this got out of control really quickly. Right? No. And so God curses the serpent and the woman and the man and the earth because of all of it. God cursed them. He's just an angry old man who's mad that they messed up his creation. Then we got Cain and Abel. First two children. Sibling rivalry. Cain kills Abel. God's like, oh no, that was the one guy I was going to do all this. Oh no. Oh man. And it, it multiplies really quickly. Go into our first scripture slide here. Genesis 6. 6. Five chapters are gone. And when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were, was attractive, were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Now they're living around 900 years at this time. The Nephilim were, in the earth, were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. I'm not going to get into that this morning, by the way. We're not exploring that. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now that's the effects of sin in all of us, by the way. And now watch this. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. What a failure. Again, I'm not trying to be irreverent here. But into the sixth chapter of the book, God's like, we read it as, maybe I shouldn't have done this. That's not what it means, by the way. God is looking and seeing the evil. And from eternity past, remember, he's had a plan. And this has not changed his plan. He's seeing and regretting, which means he is grieving, it says later, all this sin, which is an affront to him. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I made them. 
Forget it all. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Why did Noah find favor in the eyes of the Lord? Because Noah was really good? No. Favor is grace, and grace is undeserved merit. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord because God showed him favor. Not because Noah. Noah was a man, and Noah's thoughts were only evil continually. He might have done some good things. He might have had communion with God. But Noah found favor. But, 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 Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And you know the story, right? Verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh, all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you're to make it. In the length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark. Roof. And finish it to a cubit above. And set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. This was not local, by the way. This was worldwide. But I will establish my covenant with you. Now, note that. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also... Take with you every sort of food that is eaten, that's a good idea, and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded. And you know the story from there. That happened. Thank you, Lord. Now that happened like way crazy bigger though. The heavens opened up and actually says the deeps, the fountains of the deeps opened up so it's raining up and down. It's really coming down out there. It's really coming up up there too, they said. We better seek higher ground. Ain't no ground high enough because God's going to wipe out every creature on the earth except for those that are on the ark. What the heck? Have you ever read that story and thought, what? Is that not mean? Puppies died. Babies died. Every person but Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives died. This is not pretty picture on a nursery wall. This is horrendous. The earth heaved. All this stuff that these archaeologists are finding are like, man, something catastrophic happened. Darn right it did. Don't say darn, kids. It's not nice. Sorry. It was catastrophic. And God did it. What? Genesis 9. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, this is after the flood, they're out. Oh, look. He tells them to repopulate. Behold, I establish my covenant. There's that word again. 
with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, and the covenant is this, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. You know, that's held true, right? And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that's with you for all future generations. That includes us. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow's in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that's on the earth. Now what kind of God has to make a promise that will never destroy the world with a flood again? Sounds like Zeus. Okay, I won't throw any more lightning bolts at y'all. You know, you drive me crazy. Then we progress and we get quickly to the Tower of Babel. And all these people that have been populated out of Noah and his sons, they multiply and they're in one place and they're like, Hey, we've got a great idea. We're going to build a tower up to heaven so that everybody will say, Look how awesome they are. Well, is that God's will? Of course not. God's will is that he would be exalted, not man. So God goes down and he says, this ain't going to happen. Okay? And he scatters them by confusing their language, sends them all over the earth, and the tower rotted and fell. And all we know is that they didn't finish it because God didn't let them. Well, God's just a glory hound. Right? Y'all can't get glory. And he says all through the Old Testament, I'll share my glory with nobody. That's selfish. Isn't it? What kind of God are we talking about here? Quickly, starting in Genesis 11, 12 area, God chooses one person, just like he did with Noah. And he said, you know what? I'm going to build a nation from this one person. A man named Abram who later scripture tells us was a moon worshiper. So he wasn't seeking after God. He was worshiping the moon. And God says, him, I'm I'm, going to take him. All right, Tim. And he says, Abram, I'm God, and I'm going to make a covenant with you. There's that word again. Well, let's just read it. I've said many times before that I think Genesis 15 is the most important chapter in the Bible. And I'm a big Romans 8 guy. But I think Genesis 15, and I'm going to read the whole chapter. I've had six weeks to think about this. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now watch this. There's a problem. God's going to bless him with descendants and a seed. And through his seed, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. But Abram said, oh Lord God... um." I need to inform you of something. In case you didn't know, what will you give me? For I continue childless. 
And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring. Do you remember that, God? Remember I had no kids. I'm in my 90s. And a member of my household will be my heir, which means not his son, his slave, his servant. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir, old man. With a barren wife. And God brought Abram outside. Golly, this is so awesome. And said, look toward heaven and number the stars, James Webb Telescope. If you're able to number them. Then he said to Abram, so shall your offspring be. God sounds crazy. And watch verse 6. You talk about crazy. And he, Abram, believed the Lord. In the midst of his crazy, um, God ain't making sense situation, hold on to that, and he believed the Lord. And God counted it to Abram as righteousness. Oh, boy. And God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, oh, Lord God, how, how, how am I to know? that I shall possess it. And God said, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these. And what he's doing is here, he's, he's making a blood covenant. He's going to kill the, as he brought them all these, Abram cut all these animals in half and laid each half over against the other, one on this side, one on this side, and basically let the blood run down in a ditch. That's how they would make covenants. He didn't cut the birds in half. He wrung their neck and let their blood pour down. They're killing innocent animals. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram's, get out of get, shoo. So what's going on here? When people established covenants in that day, the two parties would pass through the blood that drained down out of these animals. And the blood would... Come up on their garments, and it was a messy, nasty deal. And what they were saying was, if I break this covenant, let it be my blood that is spilled. Kill me like these animals were killed. Spill my blood like the blood of these animals were spilled. If I break this covenant that we're establishing between each other. But watch this. As the sun was going down, as Abram's about to pass through the pieces, supposedly, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now watch this. We'll get back to that in a minute. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Abram didn't make it through the pieces. God went through twice. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, To your offspring, I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. 
So God passed through the pieces twice, and that's him saying, when you break this covenant, it'll be my blood that's spilled. So this, chapter 15, this covenant that God makes with Abram, listen to me, is the basis of all the future work of God. Everything the rest of your Bible comes back to this. This is God's promise to bless the whole earth through the seed of Abraham. Read Galatians. That's not seeds plural, it's seed singular. And it's capitalized in some versions. God's plan was to create for Himself a people for His own purposes and plans. To bless them and to be their God as evidenced by the multitude of their numbers, the blessing of God upon them shown in their perpetual ownership of the land that Abram was currently occupying. Land, descendants, the presence of God. But note that this covenant also says that these descendants of Abram would be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. Aren't they supposed to possess this land that Abram's on now? Perpetually? What's this talk of sojourning in a different land and serving others? That sounds like a failure in and of itself. It's like God's given himself an escape clause in case things don't work out right. But it's God's plan. Then Abram tries to make this promise happen. He takes a servant girl in at Sarah's behest. Hey, listen, I'm too old to have kids, Abram. Take my servant, have a kid with her so that this promise can happen. So that God doesn't look like a fool. Fail. That didn't work out. And we're still seeing the repercussions of it. Ultimately, this old man, 100 years old, and his old barren wife at 90 have a child. The son of promise, Isaac is his name. He ain't the seed, though. Matter of fact, he's so much not the seed, God says, I want you to take him up on a mountain and kill him and sacrifice him to me. What? God, I was 100 when this boy was born. His mama's going to have a cow. And I'm not all too happy about it myself, but I'll do what you tell me to do when the situation doesn't make sense. When I'm confused as to what in the heck are you doing, God? I'll obey you. Ooh. So they're walking up the hill. Isaac's carrying the firewood that's going to burn his dead body. And he says, um, hey, Dad, we've got all the stuff. Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God will provide a sacrifice for himself. And then he binds Isaac, lays him on the altar, and he lifts the knife to plunge into the heart of his son, the child of promise. And God says, stop. Don't kill him. Now I know that you're walking in faith. Now I know that you'll obey me regardless of the situation and the circumstance. Now I know that you trust me. And there's a ram whose head's caught in a thicket, and they kill it instead of Isaac. And they all go home and they live happily ever after, right? Not so much. Isaac gets married to a woman named Rebecca. She's barren. What the heck? We keep hitting all these speed bumps. 
And then God says, you know what? You're going to have kids. Matter of fact, you're going to have twins. And while they were in the womb, God chooses one of those twins to receive the blessing that was passed down from Abraham to Isaac. Why pick one? Why not just bless them both? God could do that, right? God could say, hey, you know what? I'm just going to bless both these boys. We saw it in Malachi, right? Jacob I've loved and Esau I've hated. God said that before they'd done anything good or evil. Romans 9. What? Isn't that mean? Isn't that unjust? So this guy Jacob is born. He is not a nice guy. This kid that's going to receive the blessing. And so you start asking yourself through the narrative, did God pick the wrong guy? I mean, this guy's not nice. Lying, cheating, stealing, swindling, two wives, two concubines, 12 sons and a daughter. And God loved this rascal. Is that fair? And Esau's over here crying, did you leave no blessing for me, my father? Nope. No, I did not. Isaac says. That's me. Well, Jacob has 11 sons at one point, and 10 of those sons plot to kill their youngest brother, Joseph. So much for the blessing. They don't kill him. They end up selling him as a slave into Egypt. Is that okay? Is this God's plan? Is that nice? Joseph then after being sold as a slave into Egypt, falsely gets accused of rape of his master's wife. He gets sent to jail. He's forgotten in jail for years, wasting away. And the narrative is following Joseph in the Bible here at the end of Genesis. Why? Well, it ends up, he does end up getting out of jail. He actually ends up second in command in Egypt to Pharaoh after he... Tells Pharaoh what his crazy dreams mean. And Joseph ends up leading all of Egypt, prepping them for a famine that's coming. Famine that's very, very harsh. Now, where does famine come from? The rest of the Old Testament makes it clear God's the one who sends famine. So God sends this famine, seven-year famine. Is that nice? Is that God's plan? Meanwhile, back in the land of covenant... The famine hits them too. But wait, this is the family that God is going to bless the whole world through. And they're His people. Does He strike His people with famine? Is that God-ish? Apparently it is. Then through a series of events, Joseph is reunited with his brothers after they come for food a second time. And he reveals himself as their brother and he sends them back to get the rest of the clans because this famine has a long way to go. They all end up in Egypt. Jacob, who had been renamed Israel by God at this point. Jacob, Israel, same person. Israel and his 12 sons, all their family, go down into Egypt. These 12 boys who would end up being the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. And they're safe and they're kept and provided for. And Genesis ends with the death of Israel and the 12 tribes all singing Kumbaya in Goshen. Yay, happy ending, right? Well, Genesis ends pretty happy. 
You can turn the page and Exodus starts. After some generations in Egypt, a new Pharaoh comes to power who doesn't know who Joseph is. Joseph, who you talking about? I don't know anything about Joseph. Remember, God said they'd be captive for how long? 400 years. And so this new Pharaoh comes along and he just sees these foreigners who are multiplying like rabbits in his land. And he's like, whoa, these people could take us over. They're more numerous than us. So he puts them into bondage, into slavery. And God said that would happen in that blessing to Abraham. (laughs) And it did. But these Israelites are not harshly enslaved by Pharaoh in Egypt. Uh, They are. I said they aren't. They are. And, And he multiplies their burdens and they cry out for a deliverer. They groan and they toil under the weight of their bondage. And God hears their cries and he sends a deliverer. Yay! And while we won't spend a lot of time in the Exodus narrative, it's a crazy mess. Exodus is nuts. Moses, this deliverer, should have been killed when he was a baby, but God protected him. Yay, God. That's, now, that's a good thing. He gets brought up as an Egyptian. He sees some things. He sees two of his Hebrew brothers fighting. He says, don't fight. And the guy's like, are you going to kill me like you killed that guy yesterday? Because he had killed an Egyptian the day before. He's like, oh, shoot, I better get out of here. He runs, and he's gone for 40 years, and God shows up in a, in a bush, a burning bush that's not consumed. That's weird, Right? And he says, go and deliver my people. Moses is like, but, 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 but I can't because I stutter. <laughs> God's fine, whatever. I'll use your brother to talk, but I'm going to use you as the deliverer. You'll be like God. He'll be like your prophet, your brother, Aaron. And then you follow that out, okay? He sends them into Egypt. Uh, God does deliver them. There's plagues, the establishment of the Passover, hoofing it out of Egypt, getting trapped at the Red Sea after Pharaoh decides to pursue them, crossing that Red Sea on dry ground, no water to drink, no food, manna from heaven, quails coming out of their noses after asking for food, rebellion, God's law given in the Mosaic Covenant, a two-week hump, it should have taken them two weeks to get from Egypt to the Promised Land, turns into a 40-year drudge. Moses dies without getting to go into the promised land. Joshua takes over. The Israelites fail to drive everyone out of the promised land like they were supposed to. The Israelites forget God a generation after Joshua. And if you ever want to question what in the world God is doing, read the book of Judges. Because it's nuts. If I were God, I would not have put that book in my book. Because it's crazy. What a mess. And all this judge's mess leads the Israelites to ask for a king so that they can be like the rest of the nations. And in 1 Samuel 8, God says, verse 7, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they've rejected me from being king over them. God has utterly failed. That's the only explanation possible here. His people, His people have rebelled against him, they've forgotten him, they've worshipped other gods, and now they are pushing him off of the throne for a man. And this is your omnipotent God? And we started in the time period that would be known as the monarchy. We're almost there, y'all. Israel makes Saul king, and he's okay to start out with, but he loses his mind, literally. David becomes king after him. Now let's look at David for a second. Samuel's told to go and anoint David, this little shepherd kid, as the next king while Saul's still king. And Samuel tells Saul, listen, that God has sought out a man after his own heart. And that's this little shepherd boy, David. And man, he's quite the guy. He's passionate. He's worshipful. He writes psalms. He's got a shepherd's heart. He's a warrior. Yeah, boy. And he becomes king and the kingdom is flourishing. 
And now everybody's thinking, ah, finally God's blessing. And God establishes a covenant with David. That word's important, don't you think? Covenant? And God establishes a covenant with David and says that one of his descendants, one of his seed, will be on the throne of Israel forever. Forever. That sounds nice. And then David kind of loses his mind too. He gives in to lust and he sleeps with one of his soldier's wives while the soldier's out fighting. And then he has that soldier put on the front lines to have him killed once that lady reveals that she's pregnant. And she hadn't been with her husband because he's been out fighting the war. David even tried to bring him back and trick him into sleeping with his wife. He has too much honor. He's like, I'm not sleeping with my wife while my brothers are out there on the front line. David's like, don't. So just kill him. The man after God's own heart says. Maybe God didn't see inside David's heart. Maybe God didn't really know what kind of man David was. Maybe he made a mistake. Maybe David wasn't the man he should have established that eternal covenant with. I speak as the foolish women speak. But this is a mess, right? And after David dies, Solomon, his son, the child of the woman he committed adultery with and ultimately took as his wife after he had her husband killed, that Solomon becomes king after him. Solomon ends up with 700 wives. 700! And 300 concubines! You know he's crazy. He worships the gods of these foreign wives. So then God rends most of the kingdom away from David's family after Solomon dies. And we then have, and here we go, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. What once was this one kingdom under Saul, David, and Solomon is now rent, not evenly, Israel is the northern kingdom, it's ten tribes, it's much bigger in land space, more people. And you got Judah down here where Jerusalem is, where the worship is, and the promises of God are seen through the worship. But Judah's small, okay, like a, a, really a tribe and a half. And they, these two kingdoms go through a series of good kings, bad kings, mostly bad kings, truthfully. And God starts sending prophets. The word of the Lord, the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord. God has said. God says. God's going to do this. And there's ups and downs and good and bad all around. And the northern kingdom has more bad kings than good. And they really fall into idol worship as their default. They had set up idols there in Samaria, their capital, to keep people from going down into Jerusalem in the southern kingdom because they didn't want Judah getting any glory. And they really fall into idol worship. And then finally God says, it's enough. And he told him and told him and told him and told him, straighten up or I'm going to destroy you. And in 722 BC, the kingdom of Assyria overtakes the northern kingdom of Israel, that northern ten tribe, bigger land group, and literally disperses the ten tribes of that northern kingdom into oblivion. You ever heard of the lost tribes of Israel? This is them. Assyria comes in and wipes out the northern kingdom. Y'all remember back in Jonah? Jonah gets sent to Nineveh. Well, Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria. And Jonah's going, I don't want to go there. These people are mean. And they could wipe us out probably. God says, I know, I want you to go preach to them and tell them about me and my mercy and my grace. 
Jonah's like, no. God said, yeah, you're going. And well, vomit, okay, I'll go. He goes and he preaches. And the Ninevites repent at the preaching of Jonah. And Jonah goes to camp out on the side of the hill to see if God's going to destroy him because he should because they're bad people. And then God uses those bad people to wipe out his people. What? 722, Assyria overtakes the northern kingdom, disperses the ten tribes, they disappear. Now back to the sovereignty of God. Is this God's plan? Ten of twelve tribes are gone. They're gone. The bulk of the covenant land in the hands of pagans. Basically that tribe and a half left in Judah. And Judah's only saved by divine intervention from the Assyrians after Israel fell. Read that account. I don't have it written down here. But the Assyrians are marching on the southern kingdom of Judah. Hezekiah goes, oh no, God help us. And an angel of the Lord comes and destroys, kills 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. And it says they wake up and they see corpses. And all the corpses were dead bodies, it says. Oh, okay. I see the corpses were dead bodies. 185,000 people. Wiped out by one angel of the Lord. And Assyria goes back to Assyria with its tail tucked between its legs and says, we're going to leave them alone. We've poked the bear and the bear ain't Judah, the bear is God. So, okay, God's just going to do it through them then, right? (laughs) Well, (laughs) Judah's in constant danger of being obliterated until they actually do get leveled. In 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. The Babylonians had overtaken the Assyrians. And these Babylonians come in and they wipe Judah off the map. They level the city of Jerusalem. They burn the temple. And they take God's people out of God's promised land into exile in Babylon. But now wait a minute. We didn't spend our 400 years in Egypt. We're supposed to be in that land. The promised land. God's people in God's land because of God's covenant and God's blessing. And God said, you didn't do right. So they were in Babylon for 70 years, given the land its Sabbath rest that they didn't give it. And then after that 70 years, a remnant would return and rebuild what ends up being a shadow of the old temple. And God's people are in God's land, but they're scratching out a meager existence under the Babylonian Empire, and then the Persian Empire, then the Greek Empire, then the Roman Empire. What of the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, and the Davidic covenants? Now, there wasn't no flood, so this Noahic covenant's holding up. Okay, we're good. At least we're not getting flooded. God was supposed to bless the world through the line of Abraham. God was supposed to rule as God and king over his people and establish that throne perpetually through one of David's descendants. And all of that is apparently not true after Judah fell, right? God's people are dispersed. They're not a nation anymore. They serve foreign kings and the line of David has fallen. Where are the promises of God? Where is the revealed, spoken, written, and passed down will of God? Has God failed? Was He wrong? Could He just not do what He said He was going to do? 
I mean, from creation to the fall of the kingdom, things do not seem to have gone according to plan. Not the way I'd have done it. But again, let's ask those questions we asked at the beginning. Can God fail? Can God be or do evil? Can God be unjust? Well, that kind of sets the tone for these two books we're about to embark into. Nahum and Habakkuk. Now, these two guys were probably contemporaries for a little while. Um, not a whole lot's known about Nahum, except he says he'd come from the town of Elkosh, which nobody can really identify with certainty. His name means comfort or compassion. And when you read this letter, this, this prophecy, this ain't a comforting or compassionate thing. In the book of Nahum, God is saying, I'm going to destroy Nineveh. And he gives graphic detail of what's going to happen. And it's ugly. Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. So Nahum had to happen before Assyria was conquered. There's also a reference in Nahum of the fall of Thebes, which is in Egypt. So they got a date for that so they can put Nahum somewhere between the fall of Thebes and the fall of Assyria. And so that puts us in the 600s B.C.-ish. And Habakkuk is later than that a little bit. We'll get to that in a second. So Thebes fell in 663 B.C. And the fall of Nineveh was 612 B.C. So Nahum had to have prophesied in between 663 B.C. and 612 B.C. We can date it that way. And he would have also been a contemporary of Jeremiah and Zephaniah. Um, And actually, I guess if you think about it, his message would have been hopeful for the people of the northern kingdom. Um, Not the northern kingdom was gone. Of the southern kingdom because they were afraid Assyria was going to come and take them too. So when they hear, oh, wait a minute, Nineveh is going to be destroyed, that's good. Okay, And again, Nahum will kind of serve as a sequel to Jonah. It happens much later than Jonah, and it's, it's the movie that Jonah wanted to see as he was camped out there sitting underneath the, the plant that gave him shade before the worm ate it and made him mad. That, this is the movie that, that Jonah didn't live to see but wanted to see because it's God wiping Nineveh off the face of the earth. And he says that you're not going to be remembered anymore. There'll be no Nineveh. And that's exactly what happens. I mean, they get leveled. And that's what the book of Nahum's about. I'm like, well, that's lovely. Right. We're going to see through the book of Nahum that God is jealous. What? Oprah Winfrey says she walked away from Christianity when she heard that God was jealous. Does it offend you that God's jealous? God declares his anger. God tells Nineveh that he's going to destroy them. And he tells Judah, I'm going to do this. Watch what I do. Then he tells Nineveh in chapter 2 of Nahum exactly how it's going to happen. The invaders appear. The city's captured. The conquerors taunt their captives. And in the third chapter, we see that God is just. And we see why Nineveh will fall. Now I'll say this up front, Nahum and Habakkuk both. The first two chapters, the first two messages, are you're not going to walk out here going, man, that was, whew, that was encouraging. You're going to walk out saying, man, shoot, 
that's the God we serve? And then the third chapters will both make you go, ah. So have patience with me there. So that's Nahum. Habakkuk is a little later than Nahum. They probably have some overlap in their lives. Um, Assyria is off the scene in Habakkuk because what God said in Nahum happened. Babylon's in power. Nebuchadnezzar defeated Egypt and Assyria. Then Babylon would invade Judah. We talked about that. It was actually a 20-year siege, by the way, that ended in 586 B.C. Habakkuk's name means to embrace or to wrestle. And in the book, he does both things. We'll talk about that. He wrestles with God and why God is doing what he's doing because this is what God says in Habakkuk. Well, first Habakkuk says to God, and you'll, you'll see Habakkuk says, God says, Habakkuk says, God says, Habakkuk says. And Habakkuk goes to God and he says, these Babylonians are scary. When are you going to take care of them? And God comes back and says, these Babylonians are going to kick your hiney and I'm going to discipline my people with them. And Habakkuk goes, you're going to do what? No, that's, that's exactly what I'm not asking for. And then God says, and after they punish you, I'm going to punish them for punishing you. And Habakkuk goes, all right, I'll be quiet now. This is nuts. And the centerpiece of the book of Habakkuk is Habakkuk 2.4 where it says, The just shall live by his faith. Not blind faith. Faith looking straight through the circumstances that he's in. And saying, I will worship God in the midst of it. I'm going to destroy y'all with the Babylonians. You're good, God. I'm going to discipline my people with these undisciplined people. God, I'll worship you for that. Has God failed? Can God fail? Can God be or do evil? Can God be unjust? Think about those things a lot over the next six weeks as we get into these two books. We're going to finish this up with application. I've actually kind of got two separate sets of application points. And the first is built around the word God. God is, as far as application goes, He's good, G. He's omni, O. And He's the director, D. He's good, He's omni, He's the director, G-O-D. Y'all can remember that, right? Listen to me. As we set into these books, there are a lot of questions that you are not going to get answered. As you go through your life, there are going to be a lot of questions you don't get answered. Settle this one now. Is God good? Yes. Yes. You say, well, you're telling me to walk in blind faith by that? No, I'm not. 
bad or hard situations do not mean that God is not good. God is innately good. We saw it in Job this past week. Oh, crazy Elihu, who maybe didn't have all the facts straight, says this, Therefore hear me, you men of understanding, far be it from God that he should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. There is nothing about God that is bad or wrong or sinful. He is holy, completely other than us. Nahum 1.7 says, The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. Psalm 100 verse 5 says, For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness to all generations. Psalm 1830 says, This God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. The fancy theological word for this is theodicy. And theodicy means that you go into any situation, any passage of Scripture, anything that you could think of, and you base it on the premise that God is good. You don't go into a situation and say, well, this proves that God is not good. And you try to make sense of how God can be good and this can happen instead of saying, well, this means God's not good. Nahum and Habakkuk both operate from the view of a theodicy. So as we move into these two books, listen to me, settle the question now. Is God good? Yes. How does that fit into my narrative? Don't ask that question. That's the wrong question. How does my narrative fit into God being good is the better question. So G is God is good. O is omni. God is omni. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. That means that he's all-powerful. He's everywhere in all points and, and places and time all at once. And he knows everything. Omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. Jeremiah 32, 17. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. He's omnipotent. Psalm 139, 7 to 12. He's omnipresent. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I send to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. By the way, hell is not the absence of God. God is present in hell. Actively punishing those for eternity who have dismissed Him and disobeyed Him. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. God is omnipresent and he is omniscient. 1 John three nineteen to 20 By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. For whenever, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and He knows everything. God, do you even see what I'm going through? God, do you know my situation? God, are you here? God, can you do anything about this? Yes, 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 and yes. Settle that now. Finally, he's the director. 
He's good. He's omni. He's the director. Psalm 115, 1 to 3. Not to us, O Lord. Not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where's their God? He's the director. He's the driver. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Settle that now! But it don't make sense. No, it does not. Romans 11, 33 to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. That means past finding out. You can't screw them. <laughs> For who's known the mind of the Lord or who's been His counselor or who's given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? Verse 36, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. And listen, I think if we stop right there and finish right there, and we're not, that don't feel like good news. And if you're paying attention, and if you think about it, there's something I ain't mentioned today. Spurgeon said, if you've got a sermon without Christ, go back home, because you've got nothing good worth preaching about. Watch this. Don't miss this. All through this nutty history of creation to the fall of the kingdom, the monarchy, God had been progressively revealing himself through all this mayhem. El Shaddai, El Elyon, Adonai, saying, I am this, I am that, I am almighty, I am Lord, I am king, I am shepherd, I am provider, I am healer, I am, I am, I am, I am. This is who I am in the midst of all this. And ultimately, he finished introducing himself in a manger in Bethlehem. Concluding in this revelation, in his perfect revelation of himself and his plan through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Listen to me as we finish. The plan was always to fulfill all of God's promises, all of God's covenants, all of God's prophecies and plans in the person and work of Jesus the Christ. That was always the plan. All of the promises of God are yes and amen in Him. Hebrews 1, 1 1-4, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purifications for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. God said, this is me, 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 this is me. And then he showed up and he said, this is me. And what did Jesus do? Just a good moral teacher, right? Just a carpenter who died a tragic death. Ephesians 1, 3 to 10. Oh, man. You want to know what the plan of God is? 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has blessed us? In Christ. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of His will. To the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him. Things in heaven and things on earth. When he created the heavens and the earth, before he created the heavens and the earth, this was the plan. And he did it perfectly. One last thing. Go to Ephesians 3. I don't have it up here. Ephesians 3, 7 to 13. The plan was to sum all things up in Christ, which God did. But watch this. Ephesians 3, 7 to 13. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of His power. To me, Paul says, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, those who were not God's people, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Watch this. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things so that, oh my, through the church, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have, oh my, boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. And then Paul says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. The plan of God was to introduce Himself and sum all things up. God the Son, in a human form, living a perfect life, sinless, and then offering that perfect life As a gift, as a sacrifice to God, the covenant had been broken. We broke it. So God said, I'll spill my blood so that they don't bear the wrath of my anger, the full force of my anger over that sin. I'm going to spare them that. Those who will put their trust in this Christ who lived a perfect life and died a perfect death and rose again on the third day showed himself alive to over 500 people plus, and then ascended into heaven, sat down at the right hand of God, and is waiting until the day that he comes back here. That was always the plan, and that's always been the offer that he's held forth to every single human being. What will you do with the body and the blood of Jesus? You sinners... You want to talk about madness and mayhem, your life is madness and mayhem. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. 
And God in his grace said, I'm going to offer you forgiveness for your sins, eternal life with me, and a part to play in my eternal plan. But he's the director. He's the writer. He's the author. You're not the star of the show. So he hasn't written history around your life. He's written history around his glory and has included us in sharing in that glory which he would not share with another, remember. And the offer is come. Receive of the fullness of this grace through faith in the finished work of Christ. That was always the plan and it always included his church, which is us. Nah, things aren't out of control. No, God cannot fail. God cannot be or do evil. And God cannot be unjust, but he can lavish us with grace. Because that's always been his plan. Keep that in mind as we move into these next two books. Let's pray. Oh, God. Mine are days that you have numbered. And I was made to walk with you. Mine are tears and times of sorrow. Darkness not yet understood. Mine are days here as a stranger, pilgrim on a narrow way. But mine is hope in my Redeemer. Though I fall, His love is sure. Mine is peace that flows from heaven and the strength in times of need. Mine is armor for this battle, strong enough to last the war. And mine are keys to Zion City, where beside the king I walk. For there my heart has found its treasure. Christ is mine forevermore. Come rejoice now, O my soul, for his love is my reward. Fear is gone, and hope is sure. Christ is mine forevermore. Because of your grace, God, because of your perfect plan, because of your all-powerfulness from eternity past into eternity future. You've been there all along. You've been in firm control all along and you summed all things up in Christ and then you invited us to partake in the very life of Christ as you called us out of darkness into marvelous light and placed your Holy Spirit within us so that we could commune with you And as you perfect this work that you started, God, we say yes to you. You are good. You are omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient. And God, you are directing this whole thing. You're driving the bus. And you show us that through the perfect work of Christ. May we partake of that now in this day and every day that is to come. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I do not apologize for going long. Suck it up. Stand up. Let's enjoy a benediction together. A really, really, really good benediction. Of course, benediction means good, right? Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. To whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed, but stay and eat with us if you can.